You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for the premiere of House of the Dragon, folks. If you have not watched that, this is coming out Friday, so you've watched it. Uh, But uh, watch that first, then come back. Uh, There's some Game of Thrones spoilers there. And, of course, there's going to be some spoilers for She-Hulk Episode 2. Be careful! Jason Concepcion, and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we are diving deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In today's episode, action, super action-packed episode, folks. On the previously on, we will be discussing She-Hulk, the second episode of the fantastic Disney Plus series, She-Hulk. And then in the airlock, folks, we're diving into the House of the Dragon premiere and giving you our second edition of the Ask the Maester column. And to join me today as we ride dragons across the beautiful skyline of King's Landing, it is the number one comics historian, the number one Godzilla kaiju stomping on the competition (laughs) is Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? I'm good to be here with the number one top Game of Thrones historian, top Game of Thrones podcast, well, I mean, knowledgeable guy. And also to talk about House of Dragon and Game of Thrones, because it's not something we've gotten to do before. And I'm super stoked for that. Shouts to, I forget the name of the person on Twitter after I tweeted that uh, the official House of the Dragon pod is the number one podcast uh, in the country. Uh uh, just to keep my feet on the ground and I forget the username, but it was just like, hey, listen, Apple uh, overweights, their algorithm overweights new subscribers. So you're going <laughs> to fall off. Don't worry about it. And I just want to shout out that person who, I, again, I forget for keeping my feet on the ground. I appreciate you. Gotta Let's just humble. jump into it. Let's jump into it. First up, She-Hulk episode two. Delightful show continues to be delightful. This is Superhuman Law, written by Jessica Gao, directed by Kat Coiro. Uh, let's dive into it. So Jennifer's courtroom debut of her Hulk powers, it's all over the news. We learned that Titania is a superpowered influencer, whatever that means. <laughs> Uh, And the name of She-Hulk is coined uh, as a reporter uh, is talking to a witness who saw the events uh, there. He's describing her and he's like some kind of like a female Hulk. Yeah, kind of like a She-Hulk. Yeah, that's it, a She-Hulk. Later that night, Nikki and Jen, who is in She-Hulk form at Nikki's behest, uh, hit the legalese bar and grill uh, to wild chants of She-Hulk from the patrons. Jen does not like the She-Hulk name. It is a dumb name when you think about oh, it. Oh, it's as really is dumb. Spider-Man, as is Ant-Man. They're all kind of d- Iron Man. And they and like, she did not- like and she and this show does like a really fun job of just like <laughs> lamb kind of like 
spearing the fact that any time for a long time in comics, any time a woman became a hero, yes. they were like She-Hulk, Supergirl. They were just like, yes. how do we just put a thing? And, you know, in Supergirl's case, it was also Superman. So like you said, everyone's getting yeah, silly I, names. Everyone's name is pretty, Batman, like pretty silly when yeah. you think about and it. And he came anyway. up with that one himself. Like that <laughs> yeah, was his yeah. own well, theory. <laughs> uh, Jen doesn't like the name, but she's going to have to deal with it. Uh, Dennis, fucking Dennis, comes over. Good and this guy, this guy, his superpower is his an unbelievable male privilege and regard for himself. He comes over and whines like a fucking itty bitty baby about how Jenna's powers now is not fair. And uh, that whole display in the courtroom was undignified. And how'd she get those powers anyway? Probably nepotism, which is not totally unfair. <laughs> and then, excuse me, there's a hot chick over there. I'm going to go talk to it, he says. Dennis is At the worst. Literally the worst. Jen, please throw this guy, like, to Orange County. <laughs> it's where he belongs. Uh, Nikki, meanwhile, loves that Jen is a superhero. Mm. Loves it. Uh, but Jen very much does not want to be an Avenger, does not want to do any kind of heroing. She's like, do they get paid? Do they have health care even? That's not a job. It's a hobby. Uh, to which Nikki says, here's the thing, though. Hulk Jen is a total snack, which... Nikki is awesome, and I hope that they Darcy Nikki, uh, and we just see her again and again and again in various Marvel fair. Um, then, unfortunately, Jen gets fired. She's fired. <laughs> She's fired. The, uh, the district attorney's office uh, didn't win the case. The case was declared a mistrial because apparently when you save the lives of the jury from a supervillain, it could possibly – um, prejudice the jury towards you. And uh, th that is actually a fair argument. And a mistrial was declared and it's all a mess. Jen interviews for numerous job positions and it's all no's because uh, apparently it's too distracting uh, to have a She-Hulk employee. They call it like a sideshow. It's mad disrespectful. Yeah. Uh, after... Many failed job interviews. We see Jen and Nikki scrolling for uh, for new jobs on uh, on the computer, and there are a ton of Easter mm -hmm. eggs here, including uh, a headline reading: "Man fights uh, with metal claws in bar brawl." Sounds like Wolverine. Sounds I like mean, someone we know. That's <laughs> very Logan behavior. Uh, it'd be interesting to know where, like. Where where did this occur? Upstate New York? My my feeling is like Madripoor. Like, you know, it's like the princess bar, definitely. Yeah. Like this page is so much fun. They we also get what I believe is like the first acknowledgement of the fact that Tiama is like frozen yeah. in the. There's like why is there? It's why is there a giant man sticking out of the ocean? Is one of the headlines, and I'm like, thank you to yeah. Jessica Gao and Zig. I, please, somebody acknowledge. The giant frozen celestial sticking out of the ocean. Um, uh, then Jen discovers that she has to go to a family dinner. She does not want to go. Uh, she tries to get Nikki to go. Nikki is like, I have a date. Very, you know, I have a date uh, that I just am mentioning right now. Sorry. <laughs> and then, uh, dinner is, you know, messy in the way that family dinners are, are always messy. Cousin Ched 
immediately mentions that Jen got fired despite being told not to talk about it. Mom tries to set up Jen on a superhero mentoring phone meeting. Dad is like, what is so Hawkeye? Does he pick up the arrows after? The big question. Everyone wants to know. This has been a question with regards to Hawkeye for for decades, literally since the time that he has first appeared. (laughs) Boomerang arrows are a thing for exactly this reason. Um, Aunt Melanie wants Jen uh, to do her hair more like She-Hulk, and she's offering to help her with that. Uh, Later, Dad checks up on Jen. Uh, Jen is not doing super great, it's clear. She's a lot to process, obviously, with with her getting fired and the way that her powers were revealed in the most public possible way. Uh, And her dad is so nice and so supportive, and he makes a great point. He says, this isn't even the first time we've had to deal with a Hulk in the family, and you didn't even destroy a city, which, great point. Yeah, thanks, Dad. Honestly, Rosie. Really just, I mean, this is the funniest thing is, I think that this show's doing a lot of really interesting stuff about like hypervisibility and the way that people's yeah. powers. And also because Jen has her consciousness, she has yeah. to deal with being She-Hulk and people knowing. Whereas for Bruce, it was like smash, 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 smash. And then Bruce went on the run. Whereas this is like, it's Jennifer Walters. She is She-Hulk. She's a superhero in an age of yep. superpowered influences. So we're in a situation where you immediately become the most famous person on earth when your powers are revealed. Also, Bruce's identity was a secret yeah. and na- a national security secret. So no one really knew that Bruce was the Hulk, and they didn't know that for for quite a while. So Bruce at least had that, despite the fact that he had, again, destroyed an no, entire no, no. college campus. You make uh, such a good point. Man- because also as, wrecked Manhattan. Yeah, just destroyed know. everything. And, and that will come into play here as well in a way we haven't seen in the MCU. But something that I think you're so spot on about, that this continues something that we've been talking about. A lot of superhero stories are based on a, a huge lie, which is the secret identity. You can't tell your family, so it puts them in danger. Spider-Man's family is constantly in danger because he's always keeping this secret, you know, Superman and Clark. All these things happen. The MCU was based on that for a long time, but it's shifting away from that. Miss Marvel's family knows she's a superhero. Everyone in the world knows Jennifer Walters is She-Hulk now. So that kind of switch between the secret identity and the double life of a superhero to being a public-facing superhero where people know both sides of your life, that feels like it's becoming a trend in the MCU that's quite interesting. Uh, It it really is. Back at Legalese, Jen is in Jen form, the better to have her body absorb the effects of whatever alcohol is cheapest because she doesn't have her job right now. Mr. Holloway shows up from GLK and H, the H in Holloway, uh, one of the opposing lawyers from the uh, from the trial. Uh, he would like to hire Jen. GLK is looking to create a superhero law division, and who better to head it than an actual superhero lawyer? Jen says, one condition... I have to bring Nikki over. I hire my own paralegal. And Holloway is like, I literally, I don't give a shit. <laughs> He's like, I do I not care. care. I do not care. Uh, she starts Monday. Over at GLK's beautiful skyscraper in what I assume is Century City, Jen discovers that uh, she's going to be expected to come in every day as She-Hulk and argue in court as She-Hulk. Uh, Jen, her Jen's wardrobe and the budget of She-Hulk attorney <laughs> at law is are unhappy about this. 
but as the face of the superhuman law division, you you understand yeah. what GLK is going for. Yeah. Jen hates it. Um, and she hates that people will assume that powers are the only reason she got the job. But don't worry about that, Jen. You're a great lawyer, first of all, and fuck everybody. Holloway uh, wants to know how Jen feels about it. And she says weirdly that she's agnostic no, about no, no. it. <laughs> I think because she's, she's breaking the fourth wall. And talking to us uh, and telling us, like, I don't want to have the power yeah. while Holloway's explaining something. And at the end, he's like, yeah. how do you feel? And she's like, uh, agnostic. So we we don't actually know yeah. what she's... He could have just been telling her something, like, <laughs> right. super yeah, important. Yeah. And she was just fourth-walling herself to death. So she's like, oh. Which is kind of interesting, because also now we know that whenever she's talking to us, she is not listening she's, <laughs> to whatever else is going on. It's a it's a very fleabag moment. Oh, you yeah. know that, that moment in fleabag with the with the hot priest where he's like, Where'd you go just now? What'd you do? Where'd you go? And she's like, What? And then she turns to us again and is like uh, and then he's like, You did it again. You did it again just now. I then. wonder if we're gonna get the fourth wall within the fourth wall. Because that was such a huge moment in Fleabag and it kinda like changed how people perceive those fourth wall breaks. It was so powerful. Yeah. So I'd be very interested to see if we'll get a a similar kind of like someone else acknowledging that the fourth yeah, wall is there's happening. A, uh, there's also a nice, a, a nice nod from Jen to her own anxiety. She's like, after that, she says agnostic. She turns back to us and is like, "I'm gonna be thinking about that exchange for the rest of the yeah, day." Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, she's like, <laughs> I have no idea what I just told him. I was, and he thinks that he thinks she's like so smart. He's like, interesting. Yeah. And she's like, I have no idea what I just said. It's this is. An incredibly relatable superhero show. I feel like this is that's, the relatable phase. Like you had Miss Marvel, now you have this. Absolutely. That's such a great point because it's part of, I think, the charm of this show. Listen, Hawkeye was a grizzled, oh, yeah. fucking a grizzled super soldier Murderer. slash Avenger and, and multiple time serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> international international mass murderer and then Kate who listen love Kate uh lived in what was probably a 4 million dollar apartment like on her own rich kid you know what i mean private like, school, it, it, like private school like fancy gold medalist is a fan is love her maybe not the most relatable but Jen feels very relatable yeah, yeah. you're absolutely Kate right. was like a Kate was like the the gateway to relatability. She made Hawkeye more relatable, even though yeah. she wasn't personally very relatable. But now we're getting Miss Marvel, Jen, and this Jen and is very relatable and Jen very relatable. And Jen is specifically like living in LA, mid thirties, relatable, which I feel like is really targeting us. <laughs> you're, you're so right. It's like Miss Marvel and now She Hulk, super relatable. Um, Jen sees her office and her office is fucking sick. Nikki is thrilled. She's like, there's a mini fridge fully stocked and a desk. It's a, of course, there's always a desk, but it's a great desk. Jen uh, is complaining. She's going to have to get a whole fucking She-Hulk wardrobe now. And Nikki's like, listen, you can afford it. They meet Pug. Yes. Who is, who is a, a, also in the superhero law division, he comes bearing uh, gifts of snacks, of office supplies, and a handy map to the best pooping bathroom, which whenever in a new office, Rosie, super important. This is a very interesting way of setting up. Like, we met Dennis, who just sucks, right? Bukowski. Yeah. And then you meet Pug, who is another She-Hulk character from the comics, who is like a perennial, kind of always has a crush on her, is her friend, is her yeah. ally. But here they really set him up as like 
a legitimately good person, not like a good guy, as I'm sure Dennis sees himself, just as like an actually nice person who brings them this really thoughtful uh, setup and is like, let me know if you need anything. And you can tell he's going to become a little like third part of their trio. When I uh, worked in a uh, uh, in a weird like biotech office for a while, uh, one of my coworkers had developed this technique which he called poop shoes, oh. and it's exactly what you think. <laughs> he would go, he would go to the to when he had to do two. He'd go to the bathroom because it wasn't there wasn't like a private there weren't a selection of bathrooms at this place, and he brought a pair of shoes in a backpack, and he would slip them on so that when people looked ah! <laughs> under the stall, oh, wow, that they, would, they would not they would not be able to identify him by his shoes, so he could feel free and unanxious. Wow. About his body sounds. That is incredible. That's like very committed. But you know what? Probably Poop made him shoes. feel way less anxious. So like good Absolutely. for him. The sm- yeah, and it's a not anxious about the smells and the sounds, and it's poop shoes. Poop I shoes. thought it was a little wow. extra, but it's, it was one of the funniest it's things. It's pretty extra, I've but ever, it's it, hilarious. It's brilliant. It, in a Costanza-like oh, way, yeah, yeah. It's, it's extremely brilliant. Costanza. Um, Jen has a meeting in Holloway's office, and I got to say... Maybe Holloway is a supervillain. He's very much like he is in the, in the comics, like a, an asshole kind of guy. Like he's talking about, uh, you know, he's getting various memos and he's like, yeah, send Wilson. Uh, send Wilson to Minnesota. He hates the cold. So let's send him there. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And we like should that. say like, you know, we were talking, we've talked about this a lot, but the 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 Dan Slot, Juan Babio, she-Hulk stuff with those famous Greg Horn covers. This is all from that. Like yeah. GLK and H. This is this all is, from this that. This is that era. She's been fired. She's hired by the Superhuman Law Division. There's even an arc called Superhuman Law in that series. Like, So we're really getting to see it. And if you want to kind of have a vision of what you might be about to see, again, go pick that up. Have a little read. But yeah, hold the way. He does not get any less potentially evil in this scene. <laughs> And by the way, uh, GLK and H, uh, GLK, Goodman, Lieber, and Kurtzberg, a, a references, of course, to the to the uh, iconic figures. Yes, behind Marvel Comics, Stanley, Jack, Kirby, Jack Kirby, Martin Goodman, and and Matt Martin Goodman. Yeah. So uh, there you have it. The only people that ever worked at Marvel Comics, as we all know. Um, yeah, and Stan would probably tell you it was just one. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it would just be like, lever, lever, lever. Lever, lever, um, uh, Jen gets her first case from Holloway. It is the case of Emil Blonsky, who is up for parole. GLK is taking this case pro bono, which is uh, interesting, I think, about why they are taking this for free. Uh, Jen is like, isn't this a conflict of interest? He tried to kill my cousin. Uh, and uh, Holloway's like, who gives a shit? I don't care. And also Blonsky signed a waiver saying he doesn't care either. So it's fine. So are you going to take the case? Jen goes to see Blonsky at the Department of Damage Control oh, yeah. uh, he also says that houses him. He also says, are you going to take the case? And she's like, eh, kill my cousin. And he's like, if you don't take it, you don't have a job. So he really don't have sucks. A job. Yeah, he really does suck. So she goes to see him at the DODC uh, facility that houses him. Expect to see more 
of these kind of facilities, like the raft in the comics. And what's the one uh, in Colorado? The vault. That's the one, the big one. So there are various prisons like this in Marvel Comics. And I, I expect as as the population of superheroes and supervillains grows and as Department of Damage Cult becomes more uh, a, a player in this world, expect more of these super prisons, which I'm... I'm a fan of the raft and the vault because that gives us supervillain escapes, which mm-hmm. I love. I love a, I love a good supervillain escape from the super prison. Yeah, uh, we've line. and we've seen like um, we've seen the a version of the raft, which is where you know the during Civil War where they put some heroes that they weren't really yeah. feeling. So they've already got a precedent for putting heroes or people who dis- yeah. dissent against the government in these places. So you can kind of expect to see some fun plays on that, I reckon. You might be unexpected who you might find in those places. I mean, listen, uh, New Avengers, Bendis's New Avengers, uh, they got together because of a supervillain escape at the raft that almost killed Spider-Man and Daredevil, I think, was was there as well. And they that New Avengers team got together because they needed to round up all those supervillains and it's just always fun. I love I love it when supervillains escape from prison or superheroes. I love when they yeah. escape from the Yeah, and let's prison. be real as well. We know that, well, okay, so Emile's is obviously in a much higher security part of the prison, but we yes. saw, we saw in Miss Marvel the clandestines escaping from a DODC facility. So we know not all of them have like really great high security. So I think we could see a lot of prison breaks. Um. Emil is in like a Hulk style clear cage ringed by lasers. He updates Jen and us on who he is. Russian born British special forces officer on loan to the U.S. government. He delivers. (laughs) Tim Roth delivers that line wonderfully. So he Uh, is like maybe my favorite thing about this episode. He is just so good. He is so there's a dryness with which he says some of the craziest yeah. things that are said in this episode, and it's wonderful. And it's also this balance between, like, absolute comedy and, like, ridiculousness with, like, this really deep truth yeah. of what he's saying about some of the problems that MCU has had in the past with its treatment of, like, people who are powered or people who are exploited by the Super Soldier Serum program specifically. So, uh, Emil would like to get out. He would like to start his life anew. He has been conversing with seven people through the uh, prison pen pal program who are now his soulmates. Uh, More on that in a second. Emil brings up his fight with the Hulk. He says it wasn't personal. He notes that he was ordered to kill the Hulk by the U.S. government, who, by the way, also pumped him full of uncooked super soldier serum, uh, which then reacted with the gamma blood that he did take on his own accord uh, and uh, which resulted in him becoming the abomination. It's not fair. Emil argues that the Hulk is a hero while he's locked up. And I think these are all good arguments Let's for a second talk about these seven. Seven is a very specific number, no? Yeah, it's very specific. It The whole thing is very hilarious and hints. It's, it's unclear in this moment whether it's going to be like something bigger or something really silly. You know, that's kind of the best thing about She-Hulk is everything is like, is this a huge moment or is it just yeah. going to be like a funny gag? But it is specific. It, it feels very specific. Like, 
uh, I don't know. I, I, I would not be surprised if whatever entity is organizing the Thunderbolts isn't like, that's our Hulk. Let's get this guy Yeah, out. also as well, I do. The other thing I think is really interesting here is like, so I was thinking a lot about Thunderbolts and, and how, you know, Thunderbolt Ross existed in this universe, who, by the way, was the one who did all of this to Emil and kind of really sucked if you watch those old movies and generally yeah. sucked throughout the MCU. But I wonder if now, you know, William Hurt tragically passed, I wonder if they're going to make the Thunderbolts and say it's like in the memory of Thunderbolt Ross. Because yeah. look, he was doing this already. He was getting these soldiers and he was making them better. So you bring back Blonsky, you have US Agent. It seems like that is probably on the table. I I I agree. Um, Jen is like, hey, listen, the parole board's going to want to know if you feel remorse. And Emil says, yeah, check out these haikus I've been writing from the bottom of my heart. My tiny ears here. And then she's like, no, 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 no. I love it. I love that as a reference to Abomination's character design and, you know, very pointy Tiny ears. Tiny ears, yeah. It's fucking wonderful. Uh, he then says, listen, I just want to live my life. I want to live in peace on a large piece of property purchased for me by my seven soulmates. Again, uh, leading us to wonder who are these seven people. Jen calls Bruce for advice. But it's not really advice. She's basically telling him, hey, I'm going to take this yeah. job I, I, and I hope you're OK with it. I'm defending Blonsky. And Bruce is like, yeah, yeah, Blonsky actually reached out. He sent me a letter with a very nice haiku. And it's yeah, he seems like he's in a good place. And I think it's fine. Jen's like, are you coming to visit L.A. anytime soon? Is like, And Bruce is like, no, uh, you think I'm in my lab slash office right now. But actually, I'm on a spaceship heading to the car. Yeah, I got some things to sort or, out. Or Bye. somewhere. No, no, no. Je Jessica Bye. Gow did confirm we were right. Bruce is going to Sakaar. So he's going to Sakaar. We Sakaar. were right. We were right. <laughs> he's in a Sakarian, you know, class A cruiser, I think it is or something. And he's he's off to Sakaar. He's got some things to deal with. And Jessica Gow confirmed that is correct. So, yeah, I think, like we said last week, go back and listen to last week's episode because he's probably going to see his son. <laughs> and let me just say, man... The cell service on on I don't know if it's over Wi-Fi right? or how that works on this spaceship. Amazing. It was fine until he went into like hyperdrive, and then she's like, <laughs> yeah, "Bye, okay." But I was like, "But he was, how are you just chilling in space talking on the phone?" That's some stark still, technology. Tony gave him that, that phone is, definitely. Very, 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 very great technology. Uh, Jen uh, tells Holloway, "Listen, I'm going to take the case." I got this shit sewn up. It is in the bag, baby. I know what I'm going to do. No problem. Blonsky getting parole. Holloway is like, that's fucking great. By the way, turn on the news. On the news, <laughs> they are reporting that video has leaked of Emil Blonsky in abomination form fighting Wong in some underground fight club. Where have we seen this before? That means Emil has escaped. And this is clearly not good for Emil's case. And Jennifer's like, shit. Singer, we see Jen putting her brawn to work around the family home. What a delightful episode. So much fun. And I love, I love that they tied in the events of Shang-Chi into this. So I wonder, is Emil, does it, uh, here's the question. It felt like in that, uh, in the Shang-Chi scene, the fight, fight club scene, that Wong and Emil have done this before. Yeah. This is it. Didn't feel like a first time thing, right? Yeah. So okay, video of that is now leaked. Are we to, are we to believe that Emil has been going back and forth? Like Wong gets him out, and then puts that's, him back. That's my guess. My guess is 
that Wong using the sling ring, you know, he's it's very easy for him to to transport somebody out of like high security prison. But the big question is, why is Emil back in the prison? You know, like that's kind yeah. of, I think, the big question. And also, there's just so much fun stuff here. Like, I really never expected them to to go this hard back into the Incredible Hulk because it's like it is the yeah. most financially like least successful um, MCU movie. It's not like totally beloved, though. There is a lot of really fun stuff in there. And Tim Roth is great, but I'm really happy to see it. And to de- and in this episode, we also get one of the first real references to that movie in a very good fourth wall She-Hulk way, where when she's talking to Bruce, she's like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, this was, you know, this that fight was such a long time ago. Like, I'm a completely different person now. And then he says, <laughs> literally. And Jen looks yeah. at the camera and goes, ha. And it's like, yeah, because that was Edward Norton, you know, it wasn't Mark Ruffalo. And I like that we're at that <laughs> level now. Like 15 years in, that is how it should be. We should be able to joke about this stuff and have fun with it and 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 kind of poke fun at that, the franchise nature of it all, where these things kind of come and go. And yeah. I absolutely love that. You can tell that there's some real comics nerds oh. in the in the production of this. And because like, and we've said it a million times and I've said it numerous times on, on this pod, like that's what I love about the, the, about ongoing storytelling yeah. specifically in comics and the way it just kind of rolls on and on and on. And how when you kind of like step back from the fictional lore and and look at everything that happened, it's fun and it's ridiculous. And when you plug that back in and like acknowledge it within the story, it just is it's it adds some spice to it. It makes it fun and exciting. And it's a nice wink to the fans who have been paying exactly. attention. Exactly, And I think like you can really tell. I mean, I, I sent Zig a message when I watched the episodes and was just like, dude, this is like so good. And you can just tell that these guys have so much fun. They know the comic book lore. Like there's a there's a blink and you'll miss it moment in this episode. And I'm going yeah. for the I'm going for the X-ray vision was right. Right. Because this just to me proves like these are WandaVision to me is is the the bar to beat for weird comic book references. Yes. But yeah, yeah. She-Hulk is coming up on it even after two episodes. So when Jen is walking through the GLK and H offices, which oh, H here is for Holloway, you see a guy walking out of an office that is just full of comic books. And you're like, wait, why are there comic books there? Ha ha! If you have read the comics, the Marvel comics, if you're a weirdo and you know this stuff really deeply, in the Marvel comics, there is a precedent in She-Hulk and other comics for them using comic books as evidence in court trials. Yeah. And that is the it's only so reason they would be there. There is some weird... So I want to know, right? So, of course, there is just hours just spent just going through and pausing them and, and, and trying to understand which comics they are. And I have a list. But, like... Yeah, let's talk about, let's talk about the list. This list it is, is like amazing. so weird. So <laughs> I really want to talk to Jessica or Zig or anyone and be like, look, were these just comics you had like laying around the office or do they mean something because like so they have like war machine 19 from 1995 which is a wild wild. first appearance of the edelon warware which is like this crazy alien suit like there's iron man 290 which if you're a big theory guy that is the return of iron man after roadie and everyone else thinks he's dead so like are they telling us something probably not but it's very fun like, they have a ton of Armor Wars tangential stuff, like Iron Man 3 Volume 3 from 1998. 
There's a Mordok and Emil Blonsky issue. There is a Return of Captain America issue, which is the Avengers 4 from 1964. There's like right. a Thor and Thanos cover, which is an old Captain Marvel book. There's like What If, which is what if Captain America had led an army of super soldiers. And there's like Rise of the Black Panther, which has like a crazy R. Adams variant cover. And there's even a foil cover, which I feel like for the 90s <laughs> kids, like, that's like... I know, you got to have the foil cover you gotta have there. It. And I'm sure that those were just like funny issues that were hanging around and they're very blurry. But like that level of detail and hinting at something like, maybe we won't see it in this season, you know, maybe it won't be this season, but maybe it will be next season or maybe it will be somewhere else in the MCU. That level of teasing something so cool from the comics, especially when that would be a big deal because really, like we said, you know, Miss Marvel, one of the things we loved about it was the cartooning aspect. But we haven't seen, apart from like Captain America, where we would see like the USO style propaganda comics yeah. that we use, we haven't seen like real Marvel comics in the MCU very much. Like that, we've never seen a wall of Marvel comics like that, all different ones. So I'm very interested to know, I mean, 15 years in, it would make sense, especially post the blip, that somebody started making comics about these fa these superheroes who are out in the world saving stuff. I just want to know how that's built in. And would it mean, like, could we see She-Hulk creators on the stand in this show talking about the comics they made? <laughs> I believe it. I believe we could see that. I think that's, like, so meta and so much in the vein of what they're doing. But it's just, it's such a fun show. It's th Those Easter eggs are fantastic. I, so, in the Dan Slot run, one of the cases that Jen takes on is uh, the case of Samuel Stearns, the leader. Um, and I've we've talked about mm -hmm. it previously, but you got to feel like he's around. And, of course, it was Stearns who injected <laughs> injected a meal uh, with the gamma blood after seeing him and, you know, after taking one look at Emil and saying, you've got it, you got a lot of a little something in you as well. Right. And then injects him. He becomes abomination. I wonder if it's not him writing the letters, if he's not trying to put together like a gamma team or just reunite with his, with his like he wants. Know? I feel like also like we never really the leader is like a big deal in the comics. And, and I it yeah. feels like. Obviously, that was teased to lead to something. And like you said, one of the joys of these things is like not everything gets picked up the next issue or the next movie. But, you know, 15 years later, somebody can pick it up and be like, oh, the leader, we haven't seen him for a while. So I think you're right. Maybe, you know, I think with this, uh, the ep the thing about Bruce going to Sakaar and everyone getting really excited about that, that obviously speaks to a possible idea of like World War Hulk or something like that. So but Bruce is already a good guy on Earth. I can't imagine a, a scenario where he's going to lose control again. So what if their version of World War Hulk is kind of more like the Incredible Hulk's arc where they put yeah. together like a Hulk team and maybe they have to come together with that team because the leader has put together a team of like gamma anti-heroes, we'll say. Let's not call them villains. But I, I love that idea. And I feel like the leader feels... Like by the end of this season, we'll we'll have seen or heard and, from him. And I, we should also add, like, part of the reason why we haven't seen a Hulk movie is because of the kind of naughty ownership of the Hulk rights, which are owned by Universal and uh, Marvel is not able to use the Hulk. They're not allowed to make a Hulk titled movie. 
It's got to be a multi-character yeah. film, like an Avengers film. She-Hulk, Thor by Ragnarok. the way, is a great Thor Ragnarok. Uh, the the introduction of She-Hulk and more gamma-powered characters is a great way to mm-hmm. make a Hulk movie without making a Hulk yeah, movie. Yeah, I, it seems also, like I, I, that's actually such a good point because Marvel obviously owns the rights to She-Hulk, right? Currently, they're right. not licensed away. That's why they can make the show. So if they make a world, if they have a Hulk themselves, then they could surely right. make a World War Hulk movie or a Planet Hulk movie, though Ragnarok was with basically Planet Hulk, Hulk, but with, but with all, yeah. other Hulks. Like you say it's She-Hulks, it's, you know, World War She-Hulk or whatever, but you just call it Hulk. She-Hulk has also had her own comic in the last few years where she was just ha- yes. had the Hulk mantle. So that would have precedent as well. I think that is very smart, Jason. Uh, this is such a fun show. Can't wait to continue talking about it. Mm-hmm. Up next, House of the Dragon time. Every week, Hot Take connects you with the latest climate news. <laughs> Journalists and storytellers trying to make sense of this complex issue. What a pithy title for the destruction of our planet. Recently, hosts Mary and Amy took a much-needed TV break to look at how climate is represented in TV and film. They revisited Don't Look Up, Billions, I May Destroy You, and even Beasts of the Southern Wild, Mary's favorite film. Listen to new episodes of Hot Take every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. We are stepping out of the airlock and back into Westeros to discuss the premiere of House of the Dragon. Rosie, are you ready? I am ready. We open in the year 100 slash 101 AC, old King Jaehaerys looking super, super old and gray. He has gone like 04 multiple on kids, (laughs) on heirs. He has missed every shot on trying to get an heir. And so uh, what's happened? The realm has called a huge meeting. This is the Great Council, the, the legendary Great Council of 101, which took place at the uh, the ruined castle of Harrenhal, the biggest castle in all of Westeros. And uh, there, the new ruler, the, the, the person who would succeed King Jaehaerys was chosen. And uh, listen, it was it was... Not that close, but we had two really good claims, Princess Rhaenys uh, and her younger cousin, Prince Viserys. And the realm went with Viserys uh, because of misogyny, basically. 
right? Absolutely. It It was the only, she is the (laughs) eldest child. She was the heir. But they didn't want to set a precedent for what will many times in this episode be called a girl heir. So yeah, misogyny. And it's an interesting thing because, uh, uh, listen, when Aegon the Conqueror came over from Dragonstone to conquer Westeros, he was uh, riding Balerion, the back, the Black Dread. But uh, there were two other dragons, and those were ridden by his sisters slash queens, uh, Rhaenys <laughs> and Visenya. So 66.66% of the dragon armada mm-hmm. was piloted by women, uh, yet Westeros does not respect the right of women to rule. Anyway, we flash forward. A golden dragon streaks across the waters of Blackwater Bay to King's Landing, the capital city. Uh, this is the dragon Cyrax, uh, piloted by Princess Rhaenyra. She climbs off. She's greeted by Harold Westerling of the Kingsguard. He's like, oh, my God, thank God you came back. Because if you didn't, I'm legitimately dead. Like, it's my fault. And I'm Head gone. on a spike. Head on a spike. I'm finished. Also very happy to see her, her friend, Alicent Hightower. Mm. Uh, they are, they are uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful friends. Uh, and I'm sure that will last forever and ever, and they will be great friends forever and ever until time. <laughs> and maybe, maybe yeah. they'll be girlfriends, and there will be no conflict, and they'll live happily ever, ever, ever after. Ever. Who knows? Uh, Rhaenyra and Alicent walk arm in arm through the Red Keep, and we see this wonderful tableau of all the courtiers and the attendants and all the people that populate the seat of government here in Westeros. Rhaenyra goes to see her mom, Queen Emma who is super duper, super duper pregnant with the long hoped for heir to the Iron Throne to King Viserys. Uh, and uh, they have a little conversation and, and Queen Emma's like, listen, do we have wombs? A child bed is our battlefield and this is what we're going to have to deal with. This is the, this is the the prison cell that we are in. This is our this is the only responsibility we are given is just pumping them out, pumping them out, pumping them out. Rhaenyra doesn't doesn't love that. And also Rhaenyra stinks of dragon, which, <laughs> uh, which her mom is like, you fucking, you smell, go take a shower. Rhaenyra goes to the small council chamber where she uh, has a job as the cupbearer and she's late. King Viserys is in the middle of telling a joke. Uh, and we get in a, this really wonderful scene, we get a feeling of what all of the different members of the small council do, right? There's Corliss mm-hmm. Valerian. He's the master of ships. And guess what? He cares about ship stuff. He's like the triarchy, <laughs> <laughs> the triarchy, uh, which is a a, a a amalgamation of three different cities uh, from Essos. Uh, they are pushing into the Stepstones. Uh, the the leader of this uh, triarchy fleet is uh, this guy, Kragos Drehar, uh, the crab feeder, and uh, as you know, as one would expect, being the master of ships, Corliss is very, very focused on anything that has to do with ships. King Viserys and Otto Hightower aren't like super locked into the pirate issue. King Viserys is like, well, hold on, if uh, if the crab feeder is going to the stepstones and and clearing out the pirates, and that's good, right? And Otto's like, yeah. What the king said, isn't that good? And then Rhaenyra enters. She's she's still stinking. She has not taken a shower. And King Viserys is like, sniffs her and is like, uh, you smell like uh, you smell like dragon, which is embarrassing if that happens in front of like the most powerful people <laughs> in the realm. Right. If your dad is like, you smell. It is. I also think it's like a really interesting bit of the world building we get here where like in Game of Thrones, 
dragons were this mythical thing that yeah. hadn't been around. Here, everyone's like, this is your pet and it smells bad like a dog. Please yeah. leave us alone. They are yeah. taking the dragons for granted. At least the people who don't fly with them are. Uh, we get some more conversation and again, learning what uh, each member of the small council does. Lord Lyman Beesbury, the master of coin, he pipes up regarding uh, the King Viserys's brother, Prince Damon's massive expenditures in re-equipping and retraining uh, the city watch. Uh, ACAB, in this case, absolutely pertains to Damon Targaryen. Damon's expenses regarding the city watch are mainly like a different, a, a more upgraded training regime that's basically making them more bloodthirsty and the fancy gold cloaks, which will become the symbol of the City Watch in later years. Uh, Prince Damon, as usual, is not here. He's not here and no one can ask him where the money went because he's not here. Viserys is like, hey, guys, I understand my brother's spending a lot of money on the City Watch stuff, but like it's actually great because it keeps him busy and we all understand what a fucking <laughs> wild card that guy is, right? Lord Corliss goes back to the crab feeder. He's like, hey, not, you know, like trade in the narrow sea is going to be impacted by this. Also, you know, kind of unspoken is like my house on Driftmark is right there. Like, can we do something? Another, another interesting and kind of like unspoken bit of context to all of this is. So the Stepstones are like, um, are, are, are like uh, uh, this series of islands that were once like an unbroken land bridge between Westeros and Essos. So it's kind of like the boot of Italy, like if it extended across to, uh, you know, Albania. So that got broken. And so they're called the Stepstones now. But Dorne during this time, approximately 109 or whatever, 110, is not part of the kingdom. It is an independent region. Uh, the Aegon the Conqueror was not able to conquer Dorne. In fact, he lost one of his sisters in the war against Dorne. So it's actually like kind of alarming that the triarchy is pushing into the Stepstones. And then if Dorne decides to cooperate and link up with them, all of a sudden you've got this big, big problem right here on the continent. So that's Corliss is right to be concerned about this. Otto Hightower shuts all this talk down about the City Watch and stuff, and uh, he turns uh, the conversation to the Heirs Tournament. And the king loves this subject because he's got a great feeling that this time, Rosie, this time, I know that there's been a lot of pregnancies, a lot of miscarriages from Queen Emma. We only ha They only have the one surviving child, Princess Rhaenyra, but... Man, this time, this time he's got a great feeling about it. And not only does he have a great feeling about it, they they booked the date in the mm -hmm. in the sports arena and everybody's coming. If you're counting the chickens way, way before they're hatched, we are put it on the books. Write it down. This child is being born and it's going to happen this day. And we're going to have a great tournament. <laughs> and it's sure. gonna be great. Yeah. I also think like you were bringing up this kind of greater context Part of the reason why he's missing it is he's obs obsessed with the idea of having an heir and having a male heir. He needs the stability, and it means that many things happen in this episode because of that that are clearly going to, you know, create yeah. massive, terrible waves in the future. Uh, Grandmaster Melos uh, is uh, is like, hey, listen, we did our best on the prediction of the delivery date, and this feels like it 
is right, but don't quote me on it. Uh, uh, Beesberry, master of coin again, says, hey, also, this is really expensive. Maybe we push until after the child is born. What do you think about that? Lord Strong, Lionel Strong is the master of laws. And he's like, hey, listen, everybody's already booked their flights. Okay. We can't change it now because everybody's on their way here. Like, you know, again, Westeros is very, very large. And so people would have been on the road, certainly if they're coming from the north, they probably got on the road like a month and a half to two months prior. So people are in motion and you can't just call it off now. And what could go wrong, right? Like we know it's going to be a boy, number one, and it's going to be fine. Yeah. Pregnancy notoriously safe. Both now and in, you know, hundreds (laughs) of years ago in a fantastical country. Nothing could go wrong. And you can definitely tell the gender of a baby. Right. Uh, It's fine. It's going to be fine. Uh, Princess Rhaenyra is informed by uh, her uh, personal Kingsguard bodyguard, uh, Harold Westerling, that Prince Damon, the king's brother, has returned to the capital and nobody knows he's there except for Harold Westerling and now Princess Rhaenyra. And this gives you an idea of how elusive Damon mm-hmm. is how scary how scary that is too for his foes he's able he's one of the most famous people in this world he's a Targaryen he rides a dragon and his feats are spoken of and he is despite all that he is able to sneak into the castle without anybody seeing him this is gives you an idea of what a threat Damon Targaryen is so uh Rhaenyra goes to see him. He's in the throne room and he's sitting on the throne. Harold Westerling is like, holy (laughs) shit. The fuck? This is, you know, implicitly feels like a threat unless you know Damon, who is just kind of like a jokey troll kind of guy. Uh, He gives Rhaenyra a a necklace. It's a Valerian steel that he acquired who knows where in his travels. You You know, Valerian steel. They're not making more of it. But it can be reforged into different forms. So one would assume that this is a very, very old necklace. Um, yeah, and she she's very taken by it because she's like like dark sister. Like she yeah. knows what Valerian steel is, and this is like a really interesting moment because, like you said, Damon's got this like shit post personality, but he's obviously yeah. a threat. But he loves his family. Absolutely. It's like this really interesting complex nature of this character that's just summed up in like one scene disrespects the throne but gives his niece this like incredibly rare specifically made piece of jewelry that stands for the legacy of their family and where they come from it's quite clear that whatever damon's issues with other people (laughs) he really loves he he clearly uh has a very special bond with Rhaenyra, his niece. Uh, later, Rhaenyra and Alicent are hanging out in the Godswood. They're doing homework. Kind of, Alicent is trying to get Rhaenyra to do her homework, which is a, a lesson about uh, Nymeria, one of the most legendary figures, certainly in Dornish history and in the history of Westeros, one of the uh, one of the uh, most well known female heroes in the in the lore of Westeros. Um, Rhaenyra is doesn't really want to do stuff, and Alicent uh, is she thinks she's uh, that Rhaenyra is worried about being overshadowed by her brother that is uh, about to be born, but that's not really true. Um, Rhaenyra, meanwhile, understands that her father really wants this 
son mm-hmm. because she just never, ever, ever, he never stops talking about it. All he does is talk about the son, the son, the son, the son. And then to give you an idea of what a sharp customer Rhaenyra is, she then immediately reels off the entire history of Nymeria's uh, journey to Dorne like it was you know, written on the back of her dragon. She just knows yeah. it. I, um, I love this scene so much. There's like too. so much innate chemistry. And both the actors did say like the vibes of them maybe being more than friends or having that kind of sapphic like coming of age yeah. relationship is intentional. And there's so much closeness and it's so intrinsically done just by positioning and yeah. you learn so much about them. And by the end of the episode, you just know where it's going to go. And it's, and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, because they're, you know, it, it's it's already such a fucked up world uh, where women in particular are burdened with all types of dangers that are just inherent in this society. But mm-hmm. in this moment, they are just too great friends yeah they're just two kids lazing around and like fucking with each other like no i don't want to i don't want to do it like you're gonna get in trouble because you're not teaching me oh actually i know this off by heart this is it's a very aria moment the nymeria's history like knowing it off by heart there's there's so many great little moments we get to see as callbacks here in the king's chambers, we learn that the Iron Throne is actually taking a toll on the king physically. A cut from one of the many blades has become infected. And Grandmaster Melos is like, you know, we can cauterize it. I've sent some samples to the to Old Town to, to see what they can come up with. Meanwhile, Otto Hightower, who is very, very concerned about any kind of hint of weakness, right? Any kind of suggestion that people could latch onto that the king is weak wants to make sure that this is not widely known. Now I should mm-hmm. should add this is it's it, it's an interesting irony, right? You're, you're sitting on a chair made of blades, and if you get cut by them, people will absolutely take that as a sign that you, you're not supposed to sit on. You're it. not supposed to sit yeah. on it. And we should add we mentioned Magor or earlier, Magor the Cruel, uh, the third uh, king of Westeros. He died literally on the throne, stabbed multiple times by the blades through his body. So uh, you can get cut. Uh, You can get cut by that. And it feels like it's going to become bigger because there's a mystery over why it won't heal. Is it like what's happening to it? What's the reaction? It feels like Viserys as well. I think you learn a lot about him because he's like, this is nothing. It's just a cut, you know, tis but a wound. And that follows into the way that he treats Emma when it comes to her fears about the pregnancy. Everything's fine. Absolutely. Viserys goes to see Queen Emma, uh, who is in her bath. Emma, in this scene, Emma's misery at at this being at this stage of pregnancy really contrasts sharply with Viserys' almost like irrational joy. Mm-hmm. He could not be happier about the fact that he is going to have a son. He is absolutely sure. Uh, Emma tells uh, Viserys that, you know, Rhaenyra is already predicting that it's going to be a girl who she is calling Visenya, uh, which is very notable. Uh, so Viserys then says, you know, this fam- family already has its Visenya. So Visenya uh, was one of the uh, sister queens of King Aegon. Uh, she was the more like uh, warlike and fearsome one of the sisters. And her child was Magor, 
a.k.a. King Migor the Cruel. So uh, to say this family already has its Visenya um, is clearly a reference to Damon and is a kind of <laughs> it, it's a window into how people look at Damon and how his how his own mm-hmm. blood, how how the king looks at Damon as a a chaotic and uh, and unstable threat to yeah. the realm, like a danger that we don't want too close to power, basically, even though uh, he very clearly loves his brother. Uh, Viserys then tells his wife about this dream he had. Uh, their, their son was born wearing a crown, the crown of Aegon the Conqueror, and then he, and then you know he heard uh, the uh, the sounds of battle and roaring dragons, and this dream was like as real as a memory. And Emma is like, "Listen, that's great, but I'm not doing this again. Mm. I can't. I can't do it." And and I think one of the most like I really. This got me when she says an incredible performance right here, uh, Sean Brooke, where uh, Queen Emma says she basically apologizes for like never having uh, managed to produce an heir to this point. And it's like what it's it's really, really sad that she feels like this is something she should apologize for in this moment. Yeah. The foreshadowing they do of her journey in this episode from that beginning where she says, you know, the birthing bed is our battlefield to this where she's like coming to terms with not producing an heir and apologizing for it, but also has this last bit of hope, but is also taking agency and saying, I'm not going to do this again. It's going to destroy me. It's very smart writing that makes what we see later even more heartbreaking. Uh, That night, Mm. Damon addresses the uh, his his brand new upgraded city watch. They've got those beautiful gold cloaks on. He gives this stirring, almost like uh, football type Mm -hmm. speech about my brother's city is falling into squalor. And uh, saying that they're like hounds, they have been trained, and now they are ready to take the city back, and then he lets them loose. And what follows is just an orgy of (laughs) dismemberments and castrations and beheadings that take place right in the city streets. Yeah. Uh, uh, And it is is rough stuff. It's like an episode worth of like Battle of the Bastards level violence in like five minutes. And it is just like absolutely brutal. This is also very, I find this very interesting because we have that moment in the throne room that feels so intimate and so authentic and real and true to who he is. And then they just pull the rug out and they're like, Mm -mm. but he's this guy too. Like he's just, he's doing this for no reason. There's no, there's never a reason for it. But in the, in the political machinations of Game of Thrones, there's not like a a crime that has been committed or something terrible that has been done to his family. This is something he is doing to create fear so that he can have power over the people. Yeah, Yeah. I'll tell you what I think. I don't even think it's power, although obviously like he, he enjoys wielding his power mm-hmm. i think at the at the very core of it he is like a younger sibling who just wants to be noticed by the older Attention. sibling all the just like look at me look at what i'm doing look at what a good job i'm doing i'm doing this i'm doing that pay attention to me bro- my brother the king and this is what he's doing and he's doing it by just like it's unhinged decapitating, man unhinged man <laughs> yeah committing various murders uh the next day the small council 
and Otto Hightower in particular are scandalized mm-hmm. by this violence. Uh, Prince Damon is in attendance for once because, of course, he wants to soak yeah. in the accolades from his brother, King Viserys. He's got blood dried like on his armor, on his face. He's looking very smug. He's looking very uh, happy with himself. Otto practically begs the king to reign in his brother. Uh, and Damon, it's it's always, it's so jarring when Damon all of a sudden does voice of reason. And he does it here. He points out quite reasonably, like, hey, uh, the, the realm's most important families are coming here for the name day tournament, the heirs tournament. Shouldn't the streets be safe when they arrive? Huh? And King Viserys is like, actually, that's a good point. Um, Otto, of course, and the rest of the small council are it's very concerning that the king's brother has a personal army that is loyal mm-hmm. only to him. That is a problem. Uh, and in fact, Otto is like, shouldn't you go home to your wife, Rhea Royce, in the Vale? Like, why don't you go home? What, you know, where's your wife at? And Damon makes a bunch of uh, Rodney, De- oh, my wife, please, you want me to go back, back, back <laughs> to the Vale with the sheep? <laughs> I don't get no respect here. Damon makes a bunch of jokes, and then he makes a very unkind comment to Otto about the uh, recent passing of Lady Hightower. Um, uh, And Otto gets mad, and King Viserys has to step in and be like, listen, okay, Otto, you know that Damon likes to fuck with you, and Damon, great job with the watch, but just chill out with the crazy shit, okay? Later on, Damon, as he's wont to do, is blowing off some steam uh, in a brothel with his paramour, Myceria, a native of uh, Lys in the free cities of Essos. Uh, but he can't, uh, you know, a, a non-uncommon problem. Uh, he can't he can't continue because he is so worried about being displaced by the the heir that Queen Emma is potentially going to give birth to. And Missari's like, don't worry about it. The king will never forget about you. But it's it, another window into how much mm-hmm. Damon just needs to be next to his brother, just needs to be noticed by him. Uh, the tournament begins uh, in conjunction with the queen's labors. So the maesters, let's take a victory lap, folks. You got it right. Nice job with the predictions. You nailed it. Very impressive. Uh, I mean, they still can't do that nowadays. So I'm like very impressed. That's one of the most fantastical moments of this of this show. The suspension of disbelief. Could they uh, guess it right? They guessed, they guessed it right. They guessed it right. We get some uh, some. Uh, here are some notable tournament highlights. We get uh, we meet Lord Boros Baratheon, the uh, Lord of Storm's End here. He asks Queen Rhaenys. Uh, for her favor, addressing her as the queen who never was. Of course, this is a reference to the fact that she lost the uh, the Great Council election of 101. Uh, that irks the box clearly. And she's you can tell that she's like enough with the fucking queen who never was shit like, uh, OK, Otto, uh, I think sincerely oh, suggests yeah. to King Viserys is like you could have uh, Boros Baratheon's tongue out. You know, why not do that? Which is. He's I, I, I he's calm down, man. Otto needs to chill out. He's like, yeah. we. It, it seems very out of character in the moment because you're just like, I thought you were meant to be this serious one, but then you realize he's obsessed with staying in power, and staying in power means yeah. the series staying in power, and that means he doesn't. He sees anything, any talk of anyone else who could have been heir or king or queen is a threat. But also yeah. like. 
chill out. A- absolutely. Um, and we see that, by the way, in the scene where um, in the royal box, Rhaenyra and Allison again, just like girls doing girl stuff, uh, great friends. They are gossiping about the various families, who's pregnant, who's ho- hooking up, all that kind of normal stuff. We see that Lady Alicent is a worrier, an- mm-hmm. anxious, and she's pulling at her nails all the time. Um, Sir Kristen Cole causes a stir by dunking on uh, two sons of, <laughs> of House Baratheon. Kristen Cole, we learn, is the um, the son of the steward of Lord Dundarian of the Dornish Marshes in the Stormlands. So interestingly, Kristen Cole here is like beating the shit out of the sons of his Lord Paramount, which is very interesting. Um, Prince Damon shows up and... As his, uh, as Viserys knew he would, because Prince Damon loves the tournaments, uh, and the prince continues the theme from the earlier small council meeting of trolling Otto Hightower. He loves, first of all, he selects Otto Hightower's son and then goes out of his way to beat his fucking ass. Then he goes to the royal boxes like, "Oh, uh, Allison Hightower, daughter of Otto." I would love it if you would give me your favor. Wouldn't that be great? Could, could I have your favor, Lady <laughs> Allison, as he like locks eyes with Otto? And, and there's an interesting moment there, too, where Rhaenyra, you could see on her face that she knows what he's up to. She's like, mm-hmm. oh, you're fucking with Otto. I get it. Um, it comes down to Kristen Cole versus Damon. Uh, Sir Kristen wins. It is a great a, a great battle, a great fight. He removes his helmet, and Alicent and Rhaenyra realize with surprise uh, that he is of Dornish blood. Gods, he's Dornish. Now, the show refers to Kristen as of Dornish um, heritage. So, and this is a, not necessarily a book change. Because he is, in the books, he is also like the common-born son of Lord Dundarian's steward, the steward of Blackhaven. Um, but making him have a Dornish blood is a, new, is a yeah. new wrinkle. And I also love the fact that they can tell he's Dornish because he's got brown hair and he's hot. Yeah, that's it. I was that's like, it. I was like, I was like, you know why he's Dornish. We've seen people from Dorn before. Yeah. I was like, this is obvious. I feel like this is another one of those things where there's a few little choices here of how they introduce people or slight changes, or should we say expansions, because of what this is based on. This is based on yeah. history that's constantly changing, you know. And I think this one is gonna be huge, especially looking at Kristen's kind of journey. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, while all of this is happening, Ugh. Queen Emma is in labor and it is horrific. The king is eventually called because she's having a lot of trouble. And he makes the decision to attempt to save the life of the child by cutting it out of uh, Emma's body, thus uh, killing Emma, but mm-hmm. potentially saving the child and it is a horrific bloody scene the queen dies in agony where and was the milk of the poppy where Just was give the milk that lady wanna... some... no they didn't want to get the baby like... drugged i guess but i'm like 
let, let's overload Please. it with milk of the. Let's overload with milk of the poppy. There's no Just reason. Yeah, let's go crazy with the milk of the poppy. Yeah, that um, that Sean Brooke did su- that scene where she's like. Just before it starts oh, to happen, so and she's sad. begging the series, like, "Please, I'm scared. Like, yeah, don't oh. do this." And that that the choice is heartbreaking. a heartbreaking one, but in this circumstance, it's just incredibly brutal, and it shows you again that obsession with the air, obsession. And you know, it is it, not to put too fine a point on it, but when the government of a of a place is embodied in the physical form of a person, it actually does, and I'm not making excuses for this, but... <laughs> You're like, this was you actually under, fine. You this was understa- okay. You understand why, because if you don't get that air, that means we don't know who's next, that means there's going to be a war, and that means, like, I don't know, two million people die because we're going to fight over the throne, unless a person that we all agree is the rightful ruler shows up. And hopefully uh, that is this prince that was born that the king names Baylor. But of course, the child dies mm-hmm. quickly after the mother. King Viserys and Rhaenyra are both absolutely shattered. Damon also, but he's, uh, you know, he expresses it in different ways, as we will see. At the funeral, it falls to Rhaenyra to command her dragon, Cyrax, to light the funeral pyres. At the next small council chamber. The funeral pyres are not even out Mm-mm. yet. They're smoldering. Otto, they're smoldering still. They're smoldering. And Otto Hightower is like, hey, I don't want to be the one to do this, but I'm going to be the one that does this. Let's talk about the succession. Otto, give it, give it like a month. Can we do that? Can we not have even it Even just like the two or three weeks. Yeah. Like, especially like, Renaria is like so incendiarily angry like there yeah. is so many it's not just like Viserys is devastated blah 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 you made that choice my guy but like there's so many layers to it where rushing this is gonna be a bad idea it's yeah. just you just know that it's gonna end badly and also like again Otto your true colors are showing and they're gonna be showing even more in the next like five Absolutely. minutes of the episode but Absolutely. please Please, just like, I think it's literally like within 24 hours. I'm like, my God, I, I, please. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the very next meeting. You've got to, please, you've just got to calm down. Anyway, he doesn't. And in Otto's mind, this is an issue which needs to be addressed now because for the good of the realm, the stability of the realm, and of course, he understands that the king has various infected wounds on his body, so he's concerned about it. Uh, now, it comes down to two choices that they have right now. There are uh, these two. It is one, Prince Damon, the king's uh, brother, and an easy choice if not for the fact that everybody understands he'd be terrible. A king, terrible king. <laughs> yeah, he is the established <laughs> precedent set should be the heir, apart from the fact we just saw what happened. Yeah, everybody we, saw it. Everybody it, knows it. He is sneaky as fuck. It's going to be a bad idea. Otto says he would be a second Magor or worse. Again, Magor the Cruel, uh, the the third king of Westeros. Uh, uh, king Viserys is the fifth. So, you know, every it, it would be semi... It's like 70 years earlier, Magor's reign. So it's kind of... It's not fresh in everybody's mind, but it is present history that yeah. we can't let this happen again. And, of course, Magor uh, uh, succeeded... One of my favorite Targaryen kings, the second 
Targaryen King, King Anus Targaryen, <laughs> or as I like to call him, the Deuce. The Deuce. And, and King Anus, A-E-N-Y-S, King Anus was, was a weak king, and uh, Magor was not. Magor was a warrior. He was knighted at a very young age. Everybody was like, wow, Magor, what a warrior. And mm-hmm. uh, that allowed Magor to come in and seize power. And uh, what followed was six years of really, really terrible shit. And nobody wants to do that again. No. But they also, whoever planned this this great place to have your meetings, didn't think about the fact that the walls are full of holes. So then we see that Damon is listening oh my God. to well, him getting shaded. But he's but, snuck in and let's, he's listening. Let's, let's, so uh, Magor the Cruel, notably, uh, ha- played a huge role in the construction of the Red Keep. Um, the, you know, the... the Construction of the of the royal castle had started before his reign, but he uh, was the driving force in it, and he wanted the um, particularly the 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 kind of most sensitive areas to be like riddled with these secret passageways. Mm-hmm. And once construction was finished, in order to keep those passageways secret. He threw a big feast for all the construction workers and then had them killed. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> now, <laughs> what what we are meant to understand by one, the fact earlier that Damon was able to come to the castle without anyone mm-hmm. seeing him. And then two, this scene where he's listening to everything that's going on is Damon knows where these passages are. Yes. yes. He knows where this shit is. He, uh, he's probably he's been doing this since he was a kid looking for them. And he probably is the foremost expert during this time of where all the secret passageways in the Red Keep are. Yeah, and the cut to him hearing that comparison to Mega is not a coincidence. It's not That's a coincidence. why it happens. And you just wonder, you're like, my guys, this was the best place. Like, you could have chosen anywhere else. <laughs> Lo and behold, well, they just keep shading Damon. Well, let me just say this also. It's 110... Ish one hundred nine one ten AC. So you know, the uh, the the Red Keep has been built for some seventy plus years, eighty years. Yeah. Hey, let's get the maesters in here and let's map the fucking secret passage. What are Thank we waiting you. for? What are Somebody. we waiting for? Somebody get in here and map these things. Anyway, um, uh. It's working Princess, out for Damon. So like it's working out for Damon. So that's uh, number one uh, candidate to succeed to the th- to Iron Throne is Prince Damon. Everybody's like that guy is uh, too much of a wild card. We can't have it. The second candidate, of course, is Princess Rhaenyra, whose main strike against her is she's a woman, and the, the and therefore the realm or a good portion of the realm would not easily support her. Corliss uh, then is like, hey. Uh, let's not forget about my wife, guys. Mm-hmm. Princess Rhaenys, the queen that never was. What about it? Can we? Can I get a r- round of applause for my wife? Uh, Otto Hightower is like, oh yeah, great. Yeah, yeah that makes a As lot of sense. No wife dies yeah. in here, please. Yeah, yeah. Everybody leave. Um, the Grandmaster, Grandmaster Melos, then not so subtly raises the possibility that, like, hey, what if? I'm just saying, like, what if Damon, you know, what if he tr- does something against the king? And then, you know, now a big argument has broken out. Um, and the king, of course, cannot stand this. His his wife and newborn son literally just died. 
He made the decision that ended his wife's life in complete horrific agony, and he can't stand this. He storms out. Uh, Later, Otto sends a secret message to Old Town. Mm. Now, this is, we must wonder what this is, right? I I wonder what it is. I wonder what he's trying to say here. I wonder who he's sending it to Old Town. So one would assume he's keeping very in touch with his family about, um, you know, about various things that would impact uh, they're standing in the realm, but this is something to keep note of. That yeah, Otto... I also wonder if it's like he's trying, you know, we know about the king's illness and how he sees that yeah. as a weakness. Like what conversation and what message is going to whom? That message is, we know how big a raven or a message can come back I, to be. And I feel like this is going to play into the rest of the season pretty I agree importantly. with you, because he very clearly right now sees things at a very sensitive juncture. So the very next thing that happens is he's writing this letter, he gives it to Grandmaster Mellos to send off, and his daughter Allison comes in. And he's like, hey, um, you should go see the king. You should go see the king. You should. Um, he's wow. hurting right now. And uh, you should put on your mom's... Nice dress. And you should go, uh, you know, g- uh, provide comfort to the king. And Allison is like, in his chambers? Are you saying go to his bedroom and do this? Uh, Otto yes. is 100%. That's what, what he Otto is, is saying. Th- that is what Otto is saying. Uh, that that night across the city at Damon and Buster's, uh, <laughs> Damon, <laughs> David Targaryen has rented out an entire brothel for all of his uh, officers of the city watch, and he is burying whatever sadness he has under piles of copulating flesh. Uh, and, of course, he's got this. He, You can tell that he's a little he's sad, but mm-hmm. he also has this image of like the cocky, swaggering prince of the city to uphold. And so when one of his guardsman is like stand for the prince of the city david targaryen is gonna make a speech he then makes a speech uh in which he refers to deceased prince balon as quote the heir for a day bad idea really bad look shocking stuff and of course otto hightower heard about it he hears about it is this connected to the message he was sending? We don't know, but what we understand is that Otto has eyes and ears around mm-hmm. the city. He tells the king, and the king is pissed, and rightfully so. He pissed, uh, pissed, pissed. He is. Uh, he calls Damon to come see him in the throne room. He's got his king's guard arrayed in front of him. He is holding Blackfire, the sword of Aegon the Conqueror. He has got the crown on, and he is like, "Did you say it?" And Damon is like, yeah, I said it. That was fucked up, but I did say it. And then he's like, you're going back to the Vale. You're going uh, you're going to uh, back to your wife, Rhea Royce, in the Vale. You're going right now. And if you remain in the city, basically, like, it's on pain of death. Like, you must leave. I am ordering you as your king to leave. Uh, Damon clearly isn't going though, because we later see him at the dragon pit with his, uh, with his dragon, the bloodworm Caraxes and his mistress, Masaria. Mm-hmm. So wherever they are going, they are not fucking going back to the veil because you don't bring your mistress to the veil to meet your wife. Uh, later in the crypt of Balerion, the black dread, uh, the, uh, the famous 
dragon of Aegon the Conqueror, the oldest living uh, thing when it was still alive, the last living thing to have gazed upon old Valeria. King Viserys meets Rhaenyra, his daughter, and he shares with her a a a actual like story recontextualizing secret. Yeah, One, this both, is both for the books and the show. This is the moment. This Everything, is a big deal. There, there is so much great character work and foreshadowing and little moments that play into each other. But if you have the takeaway moment, this is the ground shattering, changes this is a big the deal. way we look at everything moment. 100%. He says that um, Aegon the Conqueror, it, it is said that you know he looked at Westeros and saw a prize worth taking and that's why he invaded. Uh, with his with his sisters Visenya and Rhaenys, but not the case. Aegon had a dream that a long winter was coming, and that only a Targaryen on the throne of Westeros could be the hero to stop it. And this secret, apparently, we learn, has been passed down from ruler to heir since the days of Aegon, and since Rhaenyra is now Viserys's heir, he is giving her the top secret conqueror file and telling her this is the mission of House Targaryen. You now have this responsibility on your shoulders. And later we see in the throne room the various noble houses of the realm called, you know, they were already there for the uh, for the heirs tournament. So apparently they stayed around and now they are kneeling before Rhaenyra in the presence of the king and swearing fealty and allegiance to her in front of the eyes of the entire realm. And I'm sure that will, that's it. We've, it's fine now. Rhaenyra is, her reign is going to be unopposed because that's everybody why it's agreed House to of it. Dragon. It's just yeah, Targaryen's chilling. It's going to be fine. Um, yes. Yeah, so first of all, great pilot episode. They, yeah. that is, that was a masterclass in how you, give exposition in a way that doesn't feel like someone's just reading you mm-hmm. the hit, the, like the lore of a place like that was that felt like game of thrones when game of thrones was like firing on all cylinders yeah i think something that is so intrinsically clever about house of the dragon is the fact that it is essentially based on a history of westeros means you can have people in the show explaining the history as a narrative part of the show, other people... I mean, we meet so many houses that we never met in Game of Thrones, just in the first episode. Like, there is so much to take in, but there's these quiet character moments and setups that weigh it down with a humanity, even in this space of, of the dragons. And then just when you think like, oh, this is the conflict's really hotting up, they're like, oh, by the way... Everything you know is completely different from the way you thought it was. Now, apparently that little tidbit came directly from George, who has been very, you know, has been super, super involved in this yeah. show. And it's legitimately a big deal. And I, it was funny because when I saw this, I reflected on the fact that, like, when you, when you read the books— you don't know anything about Aegon. Like, we know mm-hmm. what he did, and we know what his sister is. We know the painted table. We know he uh, came over from Dragonstone, et cetera, with maybe 300 men, three dragons. 
Um, but no, but you don't know anything about his personality. We mm-hmm. don't know like what he liked, what he didn't like to do. Uh, we get the feeling that he that he was um, had warm feelings for his sister, Queen Rainies, and that kind of was just like whatever about Visenya, but maybe was in love with Rainies. But we don't know a lot about mm-hmm. him. And this is the first time that we've really got a sense of mission and motivation about Aegon. Yeah. And learn something like th- that is such a big deal about him that not only recontextualizes what we know about him, but the actions Everything. of all the Targaryen yeah. kings that came after. Because also, imagine this. So we've gone from Aegon the Conqueror, Aegon going to conquer Westeros, to destroy it, to, to defile it, to take the power, to going there to unite it. Yeah. That's huge. And also, like, I really, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to hear that confirmation because it obviously felt like it had to come to George for me because that recontextualizes the world that is his world, you know? Um, but it's kind of cool as well to build on that Targaryen tradition of, like, Danis having the dreams and the prophetic yeah. dreams and oh, yeah. Daeron the Drunken. And it, it's, it's very cool to see that built in. But this is the dream. You know, Targa- this is yeah. the this is the reason that Targaryens probably were ever gifted with prophetic dreams was for this dream. And the fact, like, it's so poetic. And this is something I love about being about doing a prequel, right? You get to do it and you get to have him say, Aegon called his dream the song of ice and fire. And he says the thing, and it's <laughs> so fun when you say the thing, and then you we know that it's true, but we know that it's it is truly a song of ice and fire because it's Jon Snow who saves the realm. You know, it's, it's, or uh, is I thought it? This, or is I, it? Uh, because like, you, you know, like, I mean, it's a great point. Uh, we could, we'll, uh, yeah, on later episodes, I'm sure we will get into yeah. the whole Prince of the Promise, but you could see jo- like Jon Snow half Targaryen, half Stark, right? Okay. Yeah, you could literally the song that's of ice what and it fire. means. At the same time, man, when, when Viserys is saying this, to Rhaenyra, he's got his hand on that cat's paw blade, that famous oh dagger that uh, that Joffrey, in his pettiness, gave to a cutthroat mm-hmm. and sent to go kill uh, Bran Stark, who is already uh, in a coma from being from falling from the tower in, in episode one of Game of Thrones. And it just shows you number one, Joffrey's immense irrationality that he sent an assassin with like a priceless and historic weapon. But it's it's meaningful to me that one, Viserys has got his hand on that dagger as he's telling Rhaenyra that secret. And then later, it is Arya stabbing the Night King with that dagger that ends ends the threat. And, you know, who's to say that that's not the song of ice and fire? Because also, I like that reading because look, a Targaryen needs to sit on the throne for the Westeros and, and the Seven Kingdoms to be saved, right? But, and Daenerys was on the throne, so there's a Targaryen on the throne, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the exact moment isn't Arya with the cat's paw blade, because that's that uniting coming together as well. I, I love that reading. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um I'm so excited to uh, continue to talk about this show. It's been fun to get back into it. It's been fun to, like, just be talking with 
my Game of Thrones friends again, you know, and like texting <laughs> people and being like, oh, my God, what do you what do you think this means? This is a big deal. Um, man, that uh, the Aegon prophecy. And of course, for Targaryens, dreams are a big deal. You you mentioned it. Danis mm-hmm. the Dreamer, 12 years before the Doom of Valeria destroyed old Valeria, had that dream. Yep. That uh, that the land was going to be uh, destroyed in a cataclysm, convinced her dad that it was going to happen. And they pulled up stakes and left. And that is why amongst all the, you know, the uh, dragon lords of old Valera, only the Targaryens survived. And the Targaryens were not even it's they were they were not like the most powerful house mm-hmm, anywhere mm-hmm. near it. They were just. Like a lower middle class dragon riding noble house, <laughs> but who had this touch of prophecy and good fortune that allowed them to survive. Mm-hmm. So any dream like this, I mean, you want to know why Viserys is putting so much stock in this dream that he had about having a son. It's the same reason that he is so almost messianic about yeah. this song and ice and fire dream of Aegon's. It's that dreams legitimately saved the entire family from destruction at one time. And so okay. they just put a lot of stock in it. Okay, so this is a question I want to ask you then, because I was thinking yeah. about this a lot with the dreams. So Viserys had that dream. Emma died. The baby died. We saw Alicent then go to his chambers. There is obviously something going on there. Is there a version of Viserys' dream where that comes true, but it's not his and Amma's baby. Like, do you see that as it's a it's a prophetic dream? It's just far more in the future than we I thought. I think uh, that would be in line with the way that prophecies and yeah. often work in this world. You know, I it's agree. the same thing with the with the prince that was promised, or uh, or Relore, any of the uh, prophecies of Relore. There's always, 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 and. George R. R. Martin's stories and in these in this world, various different ways to like to to, pre, to look at a, what, yeah. yeah to parse a prophecy and figure out what it means and it's always the trickiest, windiest, not straight. Yeah, it's like general version. Yeah, there's always like some you think it means one thing, but you read it a different way and it actually means this. And I'm very interested to see how they play with prophecy more because like in the books like Daenerys had prophetic dreams and stuff and and I would love to see I love that aspect of this stuff and I feel like with the dragons there's even more of that supernatural kind of prophetic aspect to it so I I was really excited that this is clearly going to be like a big part of this season going forwards yeah I can't wait up next the premiere of House of the Dragon Justin and so good Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. 
Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Join Josie Tota, Alicia Pasqual-Pena, and Yasmin Hamidi, three fearless young actresses, disruptors, and best friends as they navigate the issues that affect their lives on Crooked's newest podcast, Every Say. From hookup culture and social media to structural racism and LGBTQ plus rights, the girls are leaving no stone unturned and no DM unread when it comes to discussing what matters. They won't shy away from diving deep into controversial topics that are important to their generation. The girls even turn to their elders with raised voices so they, the elders can hear them over their hardened hearing and through their hearing horns that they, that they point to the girls' voices. Actors, activists, comedians, experts, politicians, other old people, 26 and older, in an attempt to understand the world their generation was handed and what they can do to improve it. We promise you don't want to miss this show. So grab your kombucha, your iced coffee, and your 17 other beverages and catch a new episode of Dare We Say every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Dragons have arrived on HBO Max. The new HBO original series House of the Dragon is a prequel set 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones. House of the Dragon tells the story of House Targaryen locked in an epic battle for the Iron Throne and power over the Seven Kingdoms. The epic series promises more drama and betrayal than ever. Listen to the official Game of Thrones podcast, House of the Dragon, on HBO Max, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to celebrate, we're answering your questions from the Citadel. And here we go. Kara, Alex, and Amanda ask, in the council meetings, they keep putting stones on round discs in camera shots that feel significant and pointed. Why does everybody have a stone ball? And what's their deal? Uh, this is a non-book uh, edition. And apparently, uh, this just came from production. One of the set decorators, the um, art design people, just decided this would be a fun way to represent that, uh, you know, uh, each member of the council is present and ready to begin work, essentially. Mm -hmm. Ryan Condal is quoted in a Hollywood Reporter story saying, quote, everybody shows up for work and they punch in. I thought it was really cool. It's a way of visualizing the set formality of the small council chamber. It's enjoyable. We should have things that we like in this world. So uh, just a, like a fun addition. I love that. I like That's, it, too. I love it. I love some good production design that kind of adds to a world building. Absolutely. Okay. Meredith asks... From the conversation Otto Hightower has with his daughter, Alicent, it's implied that he wants her to sleep with the king while he's grieving, to Alicent's, much to Alicent's dismay. But all we see is her comforting Viserys. Are we supposed to infer that anything else happened between them, or just that she shared his grief? Obviously, I hope nothing happened for Alicent's sake, but I wonder if that means something will happen with him later on. Otto is absolutely a planner, and this is... He understands that he is sending his daughter, who he knows is a very open-hearted and sympathetic person and who recently lost her mother. He knows that he is sending her in there. And it, my read is he's not 
thinking that they're going to sleep together. And in fact, that would be horrendous for the fortunes of his house, like for her, his daughter to be like dishonored in that way. I think it would be bad. But he is looking to certainly to improve the fortunes of his house. And he is thinking, oh, here is an emotionally vulnerable king. My daughter has experience with grief and maybe they have something to talk about. And certainly if they do and she's wearing a nice dress and she looks great, that will benefit my house. As Damon says in the throne room about Otto, he's a second son and he's a cunt. What does that mean as a second son? Well, the first sons inherit everything. The first sons become lords, right? When their lord father dies, the second sons, you know, get a smaller tower and maybe get to go be a knight somewhere. They don't really get to inherit anything unless the older uh, son dies. So this is Otto in that kind of grasping way, trying to make something happen. Um, and again, I don't think he's uh, I don't think he's thinking that the king and his daughter are going to sleep together. Certainly not now, but maybe in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, he's certainly looking to build a bond there. And we should note that in the books, Otto in the in as old King Jaehaerys was getting very, very, very old in his final days in the books, uh, Otto, in a very similar way, sends Alicent to go like take care of the elderly and ailing king. And it was said that King Jaehaerys thought like that he was that she was one of his daughters, like because he was so adult at that time. Mm. So Otto is looking to do that. He is looking to build bonds and bridges between uh, the Targaryen house and his own to lift up House Hightower. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It very much leads into the the medieval kind of British yeah. monarchy influences on the show. It's very Henry VIII. The, the very, royal, very Henry VIII. The royal family, the locals around them send, the, oh, my daughter, yeah. she's very good at, you know, yeah. cleaning and, and being a companion. She can read books. It has a very big vibe. So I, I like your answer to that. I think it's true and generous, quite generous to old Otto. I mean, listen, it's, it's a sleazy thing to do. Yeah, I don't mean to say sleazy, that he's but not, it's not. It's I, still sleazy, but it's not as sleazy as it could have been. <laughs> right, exactly. But it is absolutely sleazy. Ryu, Tom, James, and Nathan ask, how does the revelation of Aegon's vision, his naming of the Song of Ice and Fire, and the Targaryen secret change your view of the overall narrative that ties these stories together? Oh, my God, it's huge. It's a huge reveal. And the thing that I can't stop thinking about and that I've been texting my my Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire friends about is how it would work, you know? So according to Viserys, Aegon had that dream. The dream has been passed as a secret from ruler to heir since the days of the Conqueror. And it it's not as straightforward as it would appear. So, okay, Aegon uh, and his sister Rhaenys had a son I mentioned earlier in the, in the episode, Anus, a.k.a. the Deuce, King Anus. He followed his, his dad, Aegon, to the throne, became the second uh, king of Westeros. And so far, very straightforward, right? Aegon's getting older. He names Anus his heir, and he tells Anus the secret. Okay. Now, Anus was 
a weak king, rich kid. He didn't fully appreciate the fire and blood that Aegon expended to unite Westeros. He thought, oh, everybody loves us. Everybody loves the Targaryens. So he was very surprised when various challenges to his rule popped off as soon as Aegon had died. And now here's this new young king that everybody wanted to test. Um, and Anus's heir with his uh, with his queen, Alyssa Valerion, was... Uh, Prince Aegon, his son Aegon. He named him after his dad. Now, when Anus suddenly passed away on Dragonstone, his brother, Magor, who was the uh, the son of Queen Visenya, uh, he had been in exile uh, in Essos. Visenya, as soon as the, he she realized that uh, King Anus had passed away, she flew to Essos to get him flew back, and Magor seized power. So, okay, how would this have worked, right? Who who told Magor the secret, certainly if he wasn't supposed to be the heir? Um, and then after that, how did Jaehaerys find out Considering that Magor, uh, you know, died in a uh, in a really sudden way as well. Okay, so let, let's first let's talk about Magor first. So Magor's attempts at siring heirs were very unsuccessful. Uh, he he d- went through various methods, including marrying three women at once to try and maximize his, his opportunities to create heirs. None of it truly worked. Then came Jaehaerys, who ascended the throne at age fourteen, ruled for sixty four years. Right. Um, Okay, so how did how did these two find out about this secret? The most straightforward answer, I think, is that Aegon told his sisters. Aegon told Visenya and Rhaenys, you know, when they were planning for the invasion. Maybe that's how he convinced them to do it, you know, because it's kind of a mm-hmm. big ask, right, to be like, hey, let's invade this entire continent with no army. Um, so, I, you know, if Aegon had a reason, a secret, to tell them a secret mission that only the Targaryens could fulfill, maybe that is what motivated them to support their brother. It's another fascinating wrinkle to this is, you know, in the books, it's said that Aegon's best friend, his closest friend, um, was Oris Baratheon, the founder of House Baratheon. They were supposedly bastard brothers. Um, and you wonder if Aegon told Oris. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Rhaenys died in Dorne in like eight or nine AC during the uh, the uh, the war to try and bring Dorne into the realm. Visenya, of course, survived. And then her son born in 12 AC was Magor the Cruel. And we mentioned how when, when King Anus died, she went and got Magor the Cruel and brought him back and he was crowned king. So if the sisters knew, okay, it's easy. Visenya just tells Magor the secret, right? Now... Magor ruled for, uh, and this is very cute, six years and 66 days, a.k.a. 666, <laughs> just to let you know That's fun. <laughs> what a guy Magor was. Uh, he died uh, very suddenly after a very, very violent and paranoid and bloody and despotic reign. He was found on the throne with the blades of the Iron Throne, like literally stabbing him, piercing his body. And... Uh, King Jaehaerys was crowned. Okay, so from what we know about Magor, one, he didn't seem like the kind of person who's going to, in a, in a very sober and responsible way, tell his heir about this incredible mission that House Targaryen has. And also, 
he died violently without we would we would assume a chance to tell anyone and certainly not Jaharis the secret. And Visenya had passed some years earlier, so she couldn't have told Jaharis. Now, uh, Jaharis was the prisoner at, when he was a child of Visenya for a little while, but why would she tell him then? Because there was no kind of indication that, that Jaharis would that ascend to the throne at that time. So um, I was talking with uh, my friend Aziz, who along with his partner Ashaya runs the History of Westeros pod uh, and and the YouTube channel of the same name. They are the, they are they just know their stuff. They're the best. And uh, Aziz brought up a good he had a good wrinkle to this. He said, what if what if it was Reyna Targaryen who who passed the info to Jaehaerys. So Reyna Targaryen was the daughter of King Aenys um, and, and the wife and sister of the rightful heir, Prince Aegon, the one that Maegor usurped from. So she, she would later, during the, the Maegor years, she fled to Fair Isle, uh, was forced to wed Maegor at one point. Um, but she's got all these connections to people who potentially would have known, right? She's mm-hmm. King Aenys's uh, daughter, might he have told her? Uh, Prince Aegon, the heir, certainly would have known from King Aenys. So possibly when he was going off to fight Maegor, he would, uh, Maegor would kill him in battle. But perhaps understanding the danger he was in was like, hey, uh, I got to tell you this secret that my dad told me. And maybe that's how it lived on. She was called later on after the Maegor year, she was called the Queen in the West and then the Queen in the East, respectively, for when she stayed on Fair Isle and then later on Dragonstone. And this was because taking, you know, the fact that she was a woman aside, it was, you know, there was, it was, it seemed like the succession could have passed through her because mm-hmm. she was King Anus's, uh, uh daughter and also she was uh, the wife of the rightful heir, Prince Aegon. So it's possible. I think she's a great suspect for um, being the person who told Jaehaerys. Now, that there are, now there are other really, really interesting implications to this as well. Uh, so Aegon the Unlikely, Aegon V, was the 15th Targaryen king. And the brother of Maester Aemon, who we know from Game of Thrones, of the Night's Watch, and a one-time companion of the hedge knight known as Sir Duncan, the tall, who if you've read the Duncan Egg stories, you know about. So he came to power in kind of fluky circumstances. The king, the previous king had died, Kingmaker had died in a rebellion, and there was no clear heir, so a council gathered. They offered it to his brother Aemon, who passed. He was like, I don't want to do it. You should give it to my brother, Egg. And Eamon took the black and went to the wall, and Egg became king. Now, when Egg ascended, the realm was in this in the middle of a brutal, brutal winter, six-year-long winter. And later in his reign, he became obsessed with the idea that uh, that uh, dragons needed to come back. He he wanted to hatch these dragon eggs that he had. And so uh, that's how he died. He was at the uh, Targaryen vacation palace of Summerhall and he apparently was doing some sort of ritual to, to try and hatch these dragon eggs and the castle caught fire and he died. Now, what if... You'd imagine if you knew this prophecy, right? 
and all of a sudden you're a Targaryen king, and it's the middle of this long winter, a lo- the longest winter that anyone can remember, and it's really bad. And you're thinking, oh, shit, what if it's this one? What if it's this? What if this is the winter of prophecy? I bet there's a good chance that if he – if uh, Aegon the Fifth knew about this prophecy, he would be really concerned that that winter was the winter of prophecy. And maybe that's why he became so obsessed with trying to bring dragons back. All of a sudden, all these different uh, I love actions that of some of these Targaryen kings, like, they change and they shift a little bit. And in addition, the fact that the fluky circumstances of of his ascension, right? Uh, Master Aemon, Maester Aemon, Prince Aemon passed and then goes to the wall, and he goes to the wall with 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 Bloodraven, uh, formerly a rebel and a hand to the king. All of a sudden, that looks like weird a weird plan or mm-hmm, something, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like something like like maybe acting on this understanding of the prophecy, they decided, you know what, we need to be close to winter. We need to be close to the lands of ice to kind of keep an eye on things. And you so you stay here, King, and you try and hatch the dragons and may, and we can attack it that way. Um, so that's really, it, that's, that's the thing that I can't stop thinking about is how this prophecy would have been passed down, how it would have worked. Did it get to King Ares, whose son, of course, was Rhaegar Targaryen? Uh, who was overthrown by Robert Baratheon and then ended up being, you know, killed by uh, Jamie Lannister. Was he in the right mind ever to tell Rhaegar? There's a lot of suggestion that he had that he had become very distrustful mm-hmm. of his heir at, at a certain point. It'd be fascinating to know this. Another thing that my friend Aziz uh, from History of Westeros brought up was Balon the Blessed. Uh, King Balon was a religious extremist. And it's very possible that if this prophecy is written down anywhere, that Balon would have hated it, mm-hmm, would have mm-hmm, not mm-hmm, liked it, mm-hmm. and he would have had it purged. So there's a possibility that it was lost at that time. But I tell you, the the actions of Aegon the Fifth seem they hit different now that yeah. we know about this prophecy, and it's just fun to think about. I totally agree. And as a prophecy lover, I will say, I don't think this will be the answer because it feels a little bit too easy. But I wouldn't be surprised if maybe more than one person had the dream. You know, if it hadn't got passed down, potentially they have the dream and they think they are the bearer only of that dream. And that could fill in some gaps. But I I just love prophecies. Um, The other other question is, like, is this... Is this written down anywhere? Yeah. It seems like it would be in a world of maesters and sparrows and spies and all this. It seems like there would be a version of it somewhere, but then the big question would be why didn't it ever get to Game of Thrones? Jesus asks, there are at least two characters from Game of Thrones that are possibilities to show up in Hot D. Bran, the one-eyed raven, and Melisandre. I can see either one of those two showing up at some point to influence events to ensure a defeat of the Night King. What are the odds of these characters making an appearance? And who else from Thrones do you think could show up in the new show? It's interesting. I I doubt we see Bran as a time traveler or Melisandre just because I feel like the showrunners will probably think the audience would be confused by that. That said... Um, it is possible that Melisandre is running around at this time. You know, we act, we don't know how old Melisandre is. Uh, Chris Van Houten, who played Melisandre, 
uh, has been quoted as saying something like she's way over 100. Does that mean she was alive during this time? We don't know. But um, again, I don't think we we see her. But I love the idea of her being in the mix somehow during the time that this story is taking place. Dano asks, did Otto and the Maesters conspire to kill baby Balon in order to clear the air so he could wed Elicent to Viserys? Whew. Yeah, this is, no, 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 no way. Uh, Maester Melos and the whole realm in general would have been relieved if Balon survived to bring stability to the realm. They want that. Even Otto would be like, thank God, you know. Um, now, it is not a uncommon thing for Targaryen children to mm-hmm. die in infancy or or for, first of all, it's not an uncommon thing in this world for children to die in infancy, period. The Targaryens uh, specifically had problems because they practiced incestuous marriage, uh, which means that Targaryens are a mixed bag in terms of their temperament, see the Mad King, and their overall health. Uh, Magor the Cruel notably uh, sired multiple children who were born, stillborn, and uh, having physical deformations, okay? So the, the genetic makeup is not great. And of course, Targaryen pregnancies are often troubled. Queen Emma, who is half Targaryen, half Aaron, um, had numerous miscarriages, like many, many, many. Uh, Princess Rhaenyra is the only one of... Uh, King Viserys and Queen Emma's children who survived to adulthood, but she was pregnant a lot before this, mm-hmm. and did, none of those were successful, successfully carried to term. So this is a not uncommon event. Joan and Calvin ask, when you watch House of the Dragon, are there technological things that you notice that tell you we're 200 years prior to Game of Thrones? In Bran's flashbacks on Game of Thrones, it always struck me that the clothes, gear, transport looked the same, no matter where we were in time. But I might have been and continue to be missing a whole lot. No, you're, you're not. Technology evolves extremely slowly in this world. And, and I think the way to, to think about Westeros during this time and in Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon is that this is essentially the Dark Ages after the Doom of Valeria. Valeria was like the most advanced, most powerful culture in the world at that time, right? They made Valeria. Like, think about Valerian steel, which was this incredible substance created through um, the merging of spell casting and advanced metalwork. Um, and after the Doom, of course, that knowledge was completely lost, completely lost to the point that though there are uh, various houses, families, and in fact, like entire cities in Essos where, you know, uh, Valerian lineage is strong, the knowledge of how to make more mm-hmm. Valerian steel did not survive. That was a tightly held secret that even the Targaryens don't know how to do it. So in a sense, we're in a dark ages where technology has really come down a significant notch from the high point of old Valeria. Um, so that's a good way to, I, I think that's the way I think about it. Now, there are other moments in time, like in the in the far, far, far history um, where you could feel technology change in a way that was that that altered 
the the history of the kind of like wider world. For instance, uh, the original human inhabitants of Westeros were the so-called first men. And they were displaced by the Andals who came over from Essos and invaded and eventually pushed the first men, uh, you know, uh, almost all the way out of the lands of Westeros, south of the north. And they were able to do that because they had better steel, like, you know, better, better warfare technology. And the first men, you know, they were still fighting with bronze and stuff like that. So in the far, far past, you can feel that that kind of like technology change. But it's uh, it moves very, very slowly. And again, it was really the Valerians who had the most advanced technology. I think they had the pyromancers. They had wildfire. They had Valerian steel, all that stuff. But that's mostly gone now except for, you know, the uh, wildfire and pyromancy. But most of that technology has been has been lost with the destruction of old Valeria. And that's it for this segment of Ask the Macer. Don't miss the new HBO original series, House of the Dragon, streaming now on HBO Max. And send us your questions at askthemaester at gmail.com. A big thank you to Rosie Knight for joining us on X-Ray Vision. Rosie, what do you have to plug? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. This weekend, I will not be there, but my amazing collaborator, Oliver Ono, and our amazing cover artist, Mark Martinez, will be at Nostalgic Comics in San Gabriel. And I signed a bunch of copies. It's one of the only shops that I know in the LA area that still has copies. I signed them. Mark and Oliver will be there to sign them. So definitely make sure to go and jump on and see that. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Rosie Marks, where I talk a lot about this podcast and comics and other cool stuff. Also on Letterboxd. And then here, obviously. Yeah, just before we wanted to go as well, we just wanted to say thank you to everyone who emailed about getting a copy of Godzilla Rivals versus Batra, which came Woo! specially from Jason's secret stash. <laughs> and some of the <laughs> some of the emails were just so lovely that we actually just wanted to read a couple of them. Um, so this one came from Joe, and it says. Hi, Jason and Rosie. I'd love a copy of Godzilla vs. Batra. I have a seven-year-old son who loves listening to X-Ray Vision with me, though I have to be quick with the mute button from time to time. Understandable. <laughs> and has very recently gotten into comics after I managed to get a hold of a bunch of my old comics from the late 80s. His name is Abe, and we've been running a list of things that we want to do when the virus goes away. The top of which is to go into an actual comic yeah. shop. I'm positive that that would be so great. We can't wait for you guys to do it. You'll have to tell us how it goes. I'm positive that he would be over the moon for a copy of Rosie's new comic as an addition to his growing collection. Thanks for your consideration, and I cannot overstate how much this podcast has meant to him and I. Oh, that's so sweet. We've got it. Thank you, Joe. We've got it for him. Yeah, you got it. You got it. And I'm so glad that it means so much to you, and I really hope you enjoy the comic. The good thing is, this is a comic that is suitable for yes. both of you. So I'm very happy that I went into it with that mindset. Jen says... My husband and I love X-Ray Vision. We listen every week. You two are such a delight and so knowledgeable. Thanks for the pod. Oh, thank you so Jen, much. Thank Thanks you for, for listening. listening. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Jessica, our, our final email read, says, Dear Rosie and Jason, X-Ray team and Crooked team. Shouting out everyone. Thank you for that, Jessica. I listen to your pod every week. Love listening to your thoughts, breakdowns, recaps, and critical musings of my favorite and soon-to-be favorite films and shows. I would love to read Rosie's Godzilla issue. When I was but a wee youngster, I would watch Godzilla on TV, and when I was lucky, catch a double feature at our local theater on Saturdays. Now that I've reached middle age and I'm thoroughly enjoying sharing all the old flicks with my 12-year-old and her, his buddies, 
a fresh new comic is something I can enjoy, but also something I can share with a bunch of kids that really need to be pushed into reading. I hope I made the cut. You guys rule. Yay. You absolutely made the cut. You You made it. You did make the cut. You made it. And I hope the kids enjoy it. And I hope that you enjoy it. And thanks again to everyone who wrote in. And yeah, if you if you write some reviews, you could also hear them read out like that and hear us being very stoked and grateful for your support of the Thank podcast. Thank you. X-Ray Vision has a new home. The Take Line YouTube and Twitter channels are now dedicated to all things X-Ray Vision. So go check out at XRV Pod on Twitter and X-Ray Vision on YouTube. Plus our x-ray vision discord it's Woo! waiting for you come join the community the, uh, the link link is in the show notes rosie and i are active there uh regularly so come talk with us catch the next episode on september 2nd for more she hulk more house of the dragon plus the premiere of lord of the rings rings of power i cannot wait to talk about this let's go let's go i'm ready hobbits folks we want your five-star reviews send us those five-star reviews anywhere you can leave them on apple you can leave them wherever you get your podcast and if you send them to us and we like them we will read them here on the air x-ray vision is a crooked media production the show is produced by chris lord and saul rubin the show is executive produced by myself and sandy gerard our editing and sound design is by vasilis fotopoulos dylan villanueva and matt DeGroote provide video production support alex relaford handles social media thank you brian vasquez for our theme music see you next time It's his thought from Marine. Yeah, I want to talk about the Ayers tournament today, Mike. Damon Targaryen. Listen, this guy's the prince of the city. He's a great warrior. We get it. He rides the dragon, Caraxes. Yeah, we understand what the deal is, Mike. But uh, listen, you got beat, okay? Kristen Cole, it was a good fight. It was a good battle. And listen, we let it go when you speared the horse. That's against the rules. But everybody let it go because you're Damon Targaryen. But then guess what? You got your clock cleaned by Kristen Cole. And I'm sorry, but you got to shake the guy's hand. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, Mike. But I like to see that. I like to see a little respect for your competitor when you get bested. Be a man. Stand up and shake his hand. Don't don't pat his hand away like that, Mike. And what, what kind of what kind of lesson is that for the kids who are watching? The kids who are sit there, they're getting blood splattered on them. His heads are exploded and chopped off. And now they got to see the worst thing they see all day, which is the prince of the city, Prince Damon, acting like a schmuck. Who can't just shake a guy's hand because he got beat? I'll take my answer off the air, Mike. Thank you. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.